We're going back to 1 Kings this morning. Chapter 9, verses 1 through 9. We started this last week. We'll continue it this morning. It fits very well with the special Sunday that we're having, which is the Sunday of celebrating Jesus Christ entering into Jerusalem, even as we've read earlier in the service. You might think, well, what does 1 Kings have to do with Jesus? Well, we'll see. We've seen that last week. We'll see it again this week. We saw the promises. We see how they're fulfilled in Christ Jesus. But first, let's just read this passage again. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? 1 Kings 9, verses 1 through 9. Now it came about when Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house and all that Solomon desired to do, that the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. The Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your supplication, which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house, which you have built. By putting my name there forever, and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. As for you, if you will walk before me as your father David walked, in integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you, and will keep my statutes and my ordinances, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom over Israel forever." Just as I promised to your father David, saying, You shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. But if you or your sons indeed turn away from following me and do not keep my commandments and my statutes, which I have set before you, and go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land which I have given them, and the house which I have consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight. So Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples, and this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone who passes by will be astonished and hiss and say, Why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? And they will say, Because they forsook the Lord their God, who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and adopted other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought all this adversity on them. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So at the time of Jesus, This promise had been fulfilled in various ways at various times. At the start, the promise had been fulfilled by God's blessing as the people followed him. And then shortly after that, the promise was fulfilled by God splitting the kingdom into the northern and southern 
kingdoms, partly because Solomon had not followed the commands that God had given. So we saw last week the blessings that were promised. If you will walk before me as your father David walked. So we've got this big if statement. If you live this way, then I will bless you. Then in verse 6, he gives but. The other side of the coin, but if you or your sons indeed turn away from following me and do not keep my commandments and my statutes, which I have set before you, and go and serve other gods and worship them. So we got another big if, then, right? Then, what does he say he'll do, kids? Do you guys pay attention? Do you remember? Go ahead, Zeal. Destroy Israel, and what's the second thing you're saying? Make the temple a heap of ruins. So we've spent a fair bit of time studying the building of this temple, the, the majesty of it, the greatness of it. And then the dedication, this long prayer that Solomon gives, saying, please do make this your dwelling place. And God says, yes, I will. And the moment that you begin to worship other gods, I will also destroy it. The moment that you begin to worship other gods, this glorious building will be destroyed. By the time of Jesus, this had been fulfilled multiple times. The promises had gone from, yes, the positive, God's blessing, to the splitting of the kingdom. Constant warnings from the prophets times of repentance, kings who were faithful and kings who were not, to ultimately the destruction of the temple. It was ruined. It was destroyed. It was knocked down. It was burned out. The city was ruined. The people were taken into captivity, just as God said would happen if they disobeyed him. Right? Now, then what happened? Was Israel gone forever at that point? Can any of you kids tell me what happened? Yeah. They came back. The very next day? Not the very next day. A long time later. How did they get back? Did they take the train back? How did they get back? Did they, did they buy guns? Is that how they got back? Yeah. They walked back. Well, if they just had to walk back, why did they walk away in the first place? You want to answer again? Go ahead. Because what? The Persians took them to Babylon. They didn't have much choice in the matter, is what you're saying, when they left, right? 
They were forced to leave. So when I say, how did they come back? Yeah, they walked. They didn't take the train. Did, did, they, kill all the, did they kill all the Babylonians so they could come back? Is that what happened? Did they defeat the Babylonians? What happened? The Persian king let them go back to their own land. Why would a Persian king do such a silly thing? This is, these are hard questions, aren't they? You guys hear all the stories and it's like, I know the facts. Some of you kids are really educated on the facts. You're doing great. You got one more, one more try, go ahead. He let them back because he knew God was powerful. Oh, now we're starting to get somewhere. Yeah. What happened was, just like Solomon's prayer of dedication, where he says, if you let their enemies defeat them, and they get taken away off into captivity, if they turn to you and pray, hear their prayer and answer it and bring them back. And that's exactly what God did. They repented, they returned to God, and God showed his power and answered their prayers by bringing them back. And they built another temple. And now it's kind of, kind of sad, I know, right here in 1 Kings 9 to be talking about another temple. <laughs> another temple that's not nearly as glorious and grand. Nevertheless, what I want us to see is the ways that God has kept through the history of the Israelites both sides of this promise. So you fast forward and you see, yep, here's the positive side, there's the good part, them living according to his law and God pouring out his blessing on them. And then you see it begin to slide until it goes off the cliff and the temple's destroyed because they turn away and they worship other gods and God fulfills his promise of the negative side. Right? And then they repent and he brings them back and he fulfills the positive side again and then we watch the slide again and it's this like back and forth and back and forth and it kind of reminds me of me. Does it remind you of you? Do you see? Oh yeah. That sin was terrible. The consequences were awful. I don't want it to go down that path again. I'm going to turn back to God. I, I'm never doing that again. And you're on the straight and narrow again, right? And then after a few weeks, you just kind of slowly forget. Begin to fall back into that pattern of living, of not trusting God 
of not loving his law, of living according to your own strength and then giving into fear, right? And then turning to the Egyptians to save you. Who's ever done that? No, nobody has. Nobody Egyptians don't save anybody these days, right? What do we look to? Our money. Our money will save us. Our job will save us. Our parents will save us. God will save us if we turn to him. We see this. We've got both sides of the promise before us and we see them both playing out with the Israelites. We see them both playing out in our own lives. Now, at the time that Jesus comes, Israel had already become a proverb. Israel had already become a byword. Multiple times this had happened. The people looked at them and said, yikes, whoa. What happened to them? And then, somebody could answer. Somebody could answer accurately, just as God says, they will say, verse 9, because they forsook the Lord their God, who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and adopted other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought all this adversity on them. Now, at the time that Jesus came, they were living in adversity. They were under Roman rule and they hated it. There was a rebuilt temple, so They weren't completely without it, but even that, Jesus said, when they were talking about how grand the temple was, he said, destroy this temple and in three days I will rebuild it. What was he talking about? Do any of you kids remember what he meant? Judah. He was talking about himself and his own body, wasn't he? And that's what we're going to celebrate this week. He came into Jerusalem as a king and said, destroy this temple and in three days I will rebuild it. And so they took him up on it. They killed his body. And he raised it up after three days, didn't he? And we'll celebrate that this week. What a beautiful, beautiful thing. But here they are, the Israelites, the Jewish people, forgetting what God had said to them through Solomon at the time of the dedication of the temple after it's built. And the Lord says to him, I have heard your prayer. And yes, the answer is yes. And here's what I will do. 
they didn't want to be saved from their sin. They wanted to be saved from the Romans. And that's what we want. We want to be saved from our political enemies rather than from our sins. We want to have victory on Facebook. Not victory in the fight against our sin. Am I right? Who wants victory on Facebook? I mean, some of you fight on Facebook. Others of you are like, Facebook? What's that? A nice political victory would be nice. Winning an argument is fun. I know, I like arguments. But Jesus comes and he's fulfilling this promise that we've read here in 1 Kings. You shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. And he comes into town on Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry. That's what we're celebrating. He comes into town and he is the king that has been promised right here. You shall not lack a son of David on the throne. He comes in as that king, the one that is actually being talked about here, right? All the other ones are just reminders, pointers, looking forward to the coming of Jesus, the one who would be the true son of David and Lord of David. And so he comes, and that is the final confirmation of everything that's been promised here. He comes and he is of the tribe of Judah, son of David. He comes and he is the king. And that's why, the, that's why they celebrate like he is a king entering the city. They shout, they wave the branches, they lay their coats down, because he is king. And they know he's king. But what do they want? How many in that crowd were excited because they were finally going to get victory over the Romans. You get what I'm saying, right? How many of them wanted nothing to do with him after he was crucified? How many of them, when they realized Jerusalem and the temple were going to be destroyed again, said, forget it. What kind of king is that? He can't even, he can't even save the temple. He can't even save the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem. 
how many people today have turned to Jesus Christ, have turned to religion because they think that it gives them political power. Sometimes I wonder if that's why Hillsdale built a chapel. Think about it. Gives you nice protection, doesn't it? Religious protection. Are we really seeking to obey God's law? What are we looking for? people of God have often thought that what they're doing is relying on him when actually what they're doing is they are depending on him only remembering one part of his promise. Yeah, I'll put my name in Jerusalem in the temple. Yeah, if you pray to me, I'll answer. But there's two parts to this promise, aren't there? Two if-then statements, not just one. Now, when I say the people of God have often done this, I don't just mean they had done it multiple times before Jesus came. I mean that after Jesus established his church, we have continued to be tempted in the same way that the Israelites were tempted. And so we need to remember the two sides of this promise, both of the if-then statements. Is it possible for the people of God to become a proverb, a byword? Is it possible for the word Christian to become a dirty word, an insult. Well, yeah, it was an insult in the first place. <laughs> but I mean, is it possible for people to have their eyes go wide and think, wow, what happened to them and why? And for the answer to be, because they forsook the Lord their God who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and adopted other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought all this adversity on them. Now, you get to that, right? And you realize it's easy here to just look and say, oh yeah, that's what happens when, when, you, when they turn away from God. But we also have the promise in the New Testament that persecution will come on all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, right? And so now if we're, if we're looking at pers persecution, if we're looking at adversity, if we're looking at trouble that has come our way, we're going to have to be able to distinguish, discern between why is trouble coming my way? Is it because I have been living 
seeking to obey him, and therefore I am being persecuted for Christ. Okay? Or is all the trouble that's coming my way because I have abandoned him, turned aside from keeping his law, and he is disciplining me? There are a number of churches in this country, let alone throughout the rest of the world, where we can look at what has happened to that church and we can say, I can see what happened. They turned away from God's law. You talk about the Presbyterian Church USA, you can talk about the United Methodists, you can talk about the Church of Christ, you can talk about a number of mainline denominations and even others, and you can say, look what happens. There's nothing left. Was it the PC USA that tried to plant this church out on 22 and 3? Is that? It was Methodist. Ah. Built, built a beautiful stone building. Oh, that was the Presbyterians. They both did it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so, so, the, so the Presbyterians built a beautiful stone building, right? And then you know what they had to do with it? Give it away. They, they had no church. They gave it to the YMCA. What happened? What happened to the PCUSA as a whole is, is what happened in, in a microcosm right there. There's nothing left, right? There's nothing left but money. They've still got plenty of money. But you look, and the churches are empty. They're dead. They have become a byword. A proverb. And the proverb is, when you turn away from God, you won't have anything left. If you don't have God and his law, you don't have anything. You might think you do because you have the money to build a beautiful stone building, but you've got nothing. You've got nothing. And that's what, that's what we see down through history. The people want Jesus to do things for them. They claim that they're worshiping him. They say, yeah, he's my king. He's going to be the one who saves me. But they don't obey his law. And that tells you everything you need to know, doesn't it? He's not the king then, is he? You cannot serve 
two masters. Whatever you're obeying is your master. God says, I will establish the throne of your kingdom over Israel forever, just as I promised to your father David, saying, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. And God put him on the throne. Jesus Christ came into town, and he was king. And the people celebrated. And some of them were celebrating the fact that he was good, that he was wise, that he was merciful, that he was just. And some of them were celebrating that they were going to finally get it, the Romans. They could smell an uprising in the air, and it smelled good to them. Finally, there's the whole crowds are coming with us. Yeah, this is going to be great. Next, we're going to take up arms, and we're going to win. But the moment that he wasn't doing what they wanted, they weren't obeying him. There's nothing left there but a heap of ruins in that house. Now, this is the way that the good news, the gospel, always comes. You know the old saying, there's good news and there's bad news? Which do you want first? Lots of funny jokes come from that, right? Lots of gotchas and great plot device. There's good news and there's bad news. The gospel comes always with Bad news. Now that might sound scandalous to some of you. When I say the good news comes with bad news, and I'm talking about the gospel, the gospel comes with, how could you call the bad bad news, right? But it's true. And we see it all over the place. And, And let me just give an example first. It is the stench of death to some. The aroma of life to others. It's one thing. It's good news and it's bad news. Right? So don't be scandalized. Just listen and think about it. Now what is the bad news? The bad news is really two things. The first thing is you are a sinner. 
And until you get that bad news, the good news means nothing. The bad news is not you're living under a democratic president. The bad news is not the Romans are in control. The bad news is not that the governor is an idiot. The bad news is not that your parents are fighting. You see, there's a million things that we think are the bad news. The bad news is not that you are poor, that you didn't get the job offer, that you lost the house, and a million other things. The bad news is you are a sinner and you deserve God's wrath. That's the bad news. The bad news is if you don't worship the king, he's going to destroy you. That's terrible news for those who won't worship him. That's why it is the scent, the stench of death. Many, many people think that they want the good news and celebrate it. Many people who are in the crowds, many people in the church today think they want the good news. But they have no intention of heeding the warnings that come with it. What they're after is simply their own benefit, their own victory in this life. Now, it's easy for uh, it's it's easy for Christians in the United States to bash the health and wealth gospel for this error, right? That is the error of the health and wealth gospel. It's very easy for us to bash it because we're all healthy and wealthy. And so we're not worried about that. The moment you don't have those things, all of a sudden you realize, oh, that is a trouble, isn't it? Oh, that is a temptation, isn't it? So now what is it for us? What are the things that we are tempted to think victory is for, having a king is for, that we're looking for victory over. Where are we tempted to ignore the warnings that come with the promises? The bad news being somehow just missing, and only the good news being present. I've already given you some examples, right? But I want you to see that this is a real danger. I want you to see that it's a danger for us, not just for 
those dumb people who believe in the health and wealth gospel? What is it in your life that if it goes bad, you get bitter? You think that it's impossible? What is it that defines you? What do you find your identity in such that if you have to lose that, if you have to give that up, now all of a sudden, what was the point of being in church anyway? What was the point of worshiping God? And what's wrong with all of those people? There is no one who is exempt from this. And I want to explain that by, by pointing out that pastors and pastors' wives and elders and elders' wives are the ones that fall into this that are most obvious to see sometimes. It's not uncommon for pastors to get burned out, and that's a problem that people like to address and, and worry about and you know, be like, hey, you know, we should take care of our pastor. Make sure he doesn't burn out. Fair enough. That's sweet. Thank you. I don't want to burn out either, right? But what I want you to do is I want you to look at what happens after that. How many of them leave the ministry that they were set apart to by the laying on of hands. How could that how could that be? You you understand. And and how many of them end up just kind of maybe sometimes sort of going to church? How does that happen? I'll tell you how it happens. Their identity was in their job, not in Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? Their identity was their job. And you say, well, but their job was Jesus Christ. And I say, yeah, and your job is Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter what you're doing. If you mean it in that sense, sure. We all have our calling from God, and it is to live holy lives in obedience to him. Yes, our job is Jesus Christ. And our life is to live out loud Jesus Christ and him crucified. And not just in our actions, but in our words. Okay? So what's your identity in? Sure, your identity ought to be that, your calling. And so ought every pastor and elder, right? But... Isn't it, isn't it just possible that what you get your identity in is your job job, not your calling? And so, the counseling adds up, the number of people increases, or decreases, a building campaign comes, and pretty soon, there's too much pressure for me to think that 
I can do it on my own anymore. And I freak out. And what that reveals is, I thought I could do it on my own. You see? My identity, what was it? I'm a successful pastor. That's my identity. I know how to do it. I know how to get it done. And the moment you realize it's completely out of my control, you freak out and you have a nervous meltdown, a nervous breakdown, right? And, and then what? Then it becomes clear. Why do you wave the branch for Jesus Christ? So that you can gather people, so that you can feel successful? I'm not in danger of burning out. So that's not why I use that. I use that because I want you to think about it from, the con from, from, from a, a different angle where you, you wouldn't normally think about it. Because most of you aren't pastors. But the same thing holds true in your lives. Why do you come to church? Is it possible that it's for some reason other than obedience to Jesus Christ? It's possible. Is it possible that God will respond by fulfilling his promise and by making everything collapse so that everybody realizes, oh, it wasn't about God. Yeah. We ought to expect him to keep his promises, shouldn't we? And so, now, here we've, we've had Jesus come. We've had the, the promise fulfilled negatively and positively, and not just before then, but since then. We've seen it play out. Positive promises and the warnings fulfilled in many ways. <clears throat> and today, we celebrate knowing that our king will return. And so we say, yay, he's coming back. and knowing that he will come with a sword of judgment. Yikes. It's the same still, isn't it? That positive and that negative. Whoa. Whoa. Which one do I want to be? And even there, it's still possible to misinterpret it the same way that the Jews did and to say, yeah, he's going to come, he's going to bring his sword, it's going to be bad. We're going to watch the baddies get destroyed. It's going to be great. Without any concept of thinking about whether his judgment will be on you. The Israelites always thought, oh yeah, we're safe. We're God's people. Yeah, we're safe. 
But and here they celebrated. Oh yeah, Jesus is coming into town. This is great. Are we celebrating the fact that Jesus is going to return with truth in our hearts? Or are we celebrating the fact that Jesus is going to return not even being aware that we're not keeping his commands? And so we ought to be worried. We ought to be repenting. There are plenty of warnings that Jesus gives when he's saying he'll come again. He also says things like, like a thief in the night. He also says things like, you better be ready. He says things like, being cast out into the outer darkness if you're not ready. So here we go. We're celebrating Palm Sunday. Jesus came into Jerusalem. And it was victory because it was him keeping the promises that God had given down through the ages. Yeah, it was victory. But how many of us, if we had been there, would have thought, yeah, this is the victory I've been waiting for. And when he returns, it will be victory. He will complete the promises. The fulfillments will be all done when he returns, right? But is that what we're looking forward to? Are we actually looking forward to his promises and have we heard the warnings? People will pass by and they'll be astonished and hiss and say, why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? And they will say, because they forsook the Lord their God. That's it. They forsook the Lord their God. And so we must not forsake the Lord our God, but we must worship him in spirit, and in truth. That's what we're called to. That's what we're commanded to. That's what the good news gives us, is the ability to enter into his throne room by faith. Not making any demands. Just obeying. Trusting him to accomplish his plan. And what is his plan for us? That we would live holy lives.